Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. So Thomas um, is clear. It's clear he was motivated by patriotism, by family, and by opportunity, which really, those are probably three of the top things that motivate people today. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Alex White, sharing a story of the life of a common soldier and his uncommon achievements after the war. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the University of Pennsylvania Press, publishers of Captives of Liberty, Prisoners of War and the Politics of Vengeance in the American Revolution by T. Cole Jones, available wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Alex White, detailing the life of an average soldier who leads an extraordinary life. This soldier is not a big name. He's not a name that would jump off a page for most people. But he does do some fascinating things. And he does show that, while of course there is life before the war, for those that survive, there's a fulfilling and meaningful life after. This afterlife, if you would, will come in the American West, as this soldier uh, becomes a civic leader and puts forth a lot of, I think, important uh, civic institutions which help his community uh, in the future for centuries to come. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Alex White. Alex White, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us about your background. I'm from... Bucks County, Pennsylvania, originally. Um, I went to school at Kutztown University, which is in Amish country, about halfway between Reading and Allentown. Um, when I was there, I studied journalism with a minor in history, and I, I really wanted to be a history major at some point, um, but ultimately I decided I wanted to write more, so I stuck with the journalism and um, graduated with that degree. Um, <clears throat> My mom, Kathy, uh, was a tour guide for many years at Independence Hall, so she actually named me after Alexander Hamilton, so I've kind of had this Revolutionary War um, emphasis in my DNA, sort of in my blood from the beginning. Um, She always talked about the Founding Fathers and the Revolutionary War and the Constitution, so I I had that background instilled in me from an early age. after I graduated school, I worked for about two years as a crime reporter for the Bucks County Courier Times newspaper in Levittown, Pennsylvania. Um, after that, I did about a year of commercial freelance writing, and then I was a communications writer for about seven years for the teacher's retirement system in the financial district in New York City. Um, About five and a half years ago, I was lucky enough to start working at the University of Wisconsin-Madison as a financial aid business analyst. So my freelance work is sort of like moonlighting for me, and and I just really have to read history and to think about it and and 
try to tell a story if I can. So it's just something I really love to do. What first drew your interest into this topic? Um, so a few years back, I reconnected with my father's first cousin, Mary Collins, who is sort of like the white family historian, I'd say. And she's sort of like the keeper of knowledge for our family. She has this incredible collection of heirlooms and records and photos going back to the 18th century. Um, and she allowed me to see some copies of Thomas White's um, original correspondence and other documents like uh, the, the White Family Bible that goes back to the um, 18th century. And she has a copy of an old history book that one of my ancestors wrote um, six chapters in that include um, various stories and, and a, a bio of Thomas White. Um, so she just has this incredible treasure trove of, of documents that really relate to to the White family. And um, it, it opened my eyes a lot. Um, and I was really amazed that she has as much as she does. So once I, I, I kind of read through all of this, this, this documentation and digested it over the course of several years, I thought that there was um, a story here that no one has heard before and that I thought I might be able to tell. Who was Thomas White before the war? Thomas White was, uh, in 1776, he was a 22-year-old weaver and farmer's son who was living in Oxford Township, Chester County, Pennsylvania. Um, I think he was one of eight children of John and Margaret White, who were Scots-Irish Presbyterians. Um, Thomas's grandfather, Hugh White, was a Scottish Jacobite who was captured at the Battle of Preston in northern England in 1715. And he was... uh, sold into to indentured servitude in the colonies, and that's how the White family came to America. Um, Hugh White was eventually freed and ended up in Pennsylvania, where he settled on some land in the East Donegal settlement, which at the time was in Chester County, but um, in the modern day, it's in Lancaster County. Um, and Hugh White was one of the original founders of Lancaster County. He signed the original petition to create Lancaster County out of uh, Chester County at that time. This was about 1729. Uh, so the, the East Donegal settlement is located in modern-day Mountjoy, Pennsylvania, in Lancaster County. Um, so John White, who is Hugh's son and Thomas's father, he was farming um, in Oxford Township in the 1750s and 1760s on a I think about 120 acres of land. Um, he died in June of 1775, and in his will he left Thomas um, the sum of 16 pounds, which is not a huge amount of money. It's about $2,600 in um, today's money. So he didn't get a huge retire, or, sorry, a huge um, <clears throat> inheritance. Um, and Thomas was, was farming in his own right in Oxford Township on 20 acres of land while he was still a teenager. Um, so at that point, before the war, all the signs were pointing to him probably staying in Pennsylvania, maybe staying in Oxford, starting a family, and living a life much like his father had. 
How was White first drawn into this conflict? So we don't really know the whole story of, uh, of why he wanted to join, but he, he's, he's growing up there in the Philadelphia region. Um, he's a young man in 1776 when the Declaration of Independence was signed and the call went out uh, for Pennsylvania to provide 6,000 soldiers for the flying camps that they had established, which were these regiments, um, these battalions of reserve troops that, that George Washington had envisioned that could be raised and deployed quickly to the battlefield. Um, so on July 12, 1776, he left home and joined up with, uh, with William Montgomery's flying camp, um, and he was elected in that company as the first lieutenant. So this is significant because um, his status as first lieutenant almost certainly saved his life after he was captured. White will be captured at Fort Washington. What happens next? Um, so they, they surrendered. About 2,800 prisoners surrendered um, on November 16, 1776. And he was marched with the other prisoners south into Manhattan, where they were housed in these sort of makeshift prisons, which were really more like stables and um, non-Anglican churches and, and any other available buildings that the British could find to, to pen the men up. Um, there was a partially completed jail called New Bridewell, where some of the prison prisoners were held. Um, so these were pretty harsh conditions. Um, Thomas says that they were um, that, that they suffered all but death, were his words, with cold, hunger, and vermin. That's his exact, exact quote, which is consistent about what we know about the treatment of American uh, prisoners at this time by the British. Um, they were sort of being encouraged just to die as quickly as they could. Uh, so they weren't given any food at first. They weren't allowed to have fires. This is November, so it's very cold. They weren't allowed to have fires for warmth. Um, but for Thomas, he was one of the lucky ones who happened to be an officer. And about three days after capture, he was most likely separated out from the rank and file and was paroled. So, um, as I mentioned before, this probably saved his life because not a lot of the men um, ended up making it back because of the unspeakable neglect and abuse that they suffered. Um, but I think Thomas is paroled, and we have some evidence of that just in his, um, in his letter that he writes to the War Department later on. Um, it, it, it becomes clear he's, he's one of these lieutenants who's kind of given his run of the city. Does he fight again later during the war? Um, so, well, we believe that he fights again. Um, the family has said that he fights again. Now, he doesn't say this directly. Um, so what he says is that he, in 1778, in the fall, moves with his brother um, to North Carolina. Um, now, the records are a little difficult to, to align with the timeline that, that, um, that, uh, that I believe happened, um, but I, it's the family's belief that he fought in the Battle of Kings Mountain in North Carolina and the Battle of Cowpens, which is South Carolina. 
Um, but when we try to find the muster rolls to back these things up, they're, they're sort of unclear, and the timelines don't necessarily match up with the Thomas White from Pennsylvania. So it's a little bit of an open question right now. Um, and the fact that he didn't return to the front lines after his escape, which we can go back to how he may have escaped in, in a second, but um, after, you, after you had escaped, there was an order in place um, at the time that you needed to return to the front lines and, and continue fighting, um, and Thomas did not do that. So this cost him a lot in the, in the future because it prevented him from getting his pension. Um, and so he was continually visiting Philadelphia and writing to the War Department asking for his pension and asking for uh, some kind of redress to his grievances here. He says he didn't know about the order and he um, not returning to the theater of battle. He wasn't entitled to his pension. So I think his pension ended up being, I think it was $1,300 plus interest. So if you collect it on it today, it would be, you know, over a million dollars, I think. <laughs> I tried to add it up with 3% uh, compound interest. How does he escape? So as an officer, he was paroled, and he would have been quartered in someone's house in Manhattan um, and just living in their house. And the rules were, I think, that you could walk around basically anywhere in Manhattan as long as you followed a few rules and you were home at night back to your assigned uh, place of residence. Um, they, they treated the officers much differently than the enlisted men at that time. So he was in Manhattan until January 1777 when the men who were uh, being held in Manhattan in, in these conditions were moved to Brooklyn, which at that time they referred to as Long Island. It was really before Brooklyn was um, incorporated, I think, or created. So. He says he was moved to Long Island in January 1777, um, but officers were given this free reign to just roam around the city during daylight hours and have their run of the town as long as they returned to where they were supposed to be at night. So one of the sources that I um, read and really enjoyed reading was the diary of Lieutenant Jabez Fitch, and he gives a really detailed account of the experience of, of an officer in New York at this time. He was a prisoner who was paroled, and he, he would go shopping. He would go to dinner every night with the, you know his French officer friends, and he's visiting people in New York. He's occasionally visiting his men who are being held in the inhumane, deplorable conditions. And I envision Thomas having the same level of freedom to roam the city unaccompanied. And he mentions he got a letter from home so that's another piece of evidence, indirect evidence, that says, well, how could he get mail if he's, you know, not, um, unless he's staying at an address somewhere where, where they could, you know, actually correspond with him, which was not the case, I think, for all the enlisted men who, you know, being cooped up in, in churches and places like that. So um, I, I like to envision that, that Thomas, once he got the letter that, you know, his, his brother was sick, his mother wasn't doing well, he determined that he was going to escape, go back to Pennsylvania, and I'd, I like to think that he was in Brooklyn unaccompanied, and he just got on a boat, crossed over to Bayonne, New Jersey, or somewhere like that, and just disappeared. 
Where does he go after the war? It's not Pennsylvania. So he, in, um, I, I had mentioned in uh, the fall of 1778, he says he and his brother Isaac, who Isaac was the brother who was sick, and Thomas was very close with Isaac. They moved to North Carolina, um, and I believe they ultimately landed in Greenville, North Carolina. Um, at, at, so after the war, they stay for a number of years. Thomas marries and has seven children in North Carolina. And then for reasons that are unclear, around 1816, they pack up into horse-drawn carts all of their possessions and take up this treacherous trip to Illinois to um, start anew on the frontier. How does this story develop in the post-war years? So in the post-war years, um, after he relocates to Illinois, he's a pioneer now. He's far, far from home, and he's eventually a town father. So what he does is um, once he's in Illinois, um, he's with a party uh, of uh, people who are, are found in a new town, and they turned to him, being the oldest man present is the way the story goes. It's in you know the, the books, the history books. Uh, they turn to him and say, can you name the town? And so he's, he's come from North Carolina, from Greenville, North Carolina. And he looks around and sees that, you know, the area is very green. There's trees everywhere, and it's a very green site. And he just says, we'll name it Greenville. So this is Greenville, Illinois, in Bond County. So he's in Greenville. He um, obtains 300 acres and starts farming. And then he also builds the first one-room log, uh, log cabin schoolhouse in, in Bond County, Illinois. So this was a subscription school, so the parents had to pay, you know, like a dollar or two per term for their students to, to go to school. But they could also, um, they could barter furs or venison or honey or something to, to pay the tuition. And uh, Thomas was teacher, so now he's taken on the role um, of school teacher as well. Um, and Thomas himself, in, in those days, he, he probably was, um, was taught, was educated at home in Pennsylvania, probably at the home of a neighbor or at a private tutor or something like that. But it's clear um, that he obtained a good education for those days um, himself. Um, which put him in a position to be a school teacher. What does this story reveal to us about the revolutionary era as a whole? Um, so the thing that really struck me is that that people in those days, I think, were so much more like us than we give them credit for. Um, as far as you know, they were they were interesting people. They were smart and vibrant and educated. I think maybe some people have a tendency to believe that you know people weren't the same back then, or they weren't motivated by the same thing. So Thomas um, is clear; it's clear he was motivated by patriotism, by family, and by opportunity. Which really, those are probably three of the top things that motivate people today. So that that struck me just how 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 much I recognized his voice and his actions. Um, and 
another thing that struck me is that people were mobile back then in ways maybe that, that aren't apparent, but I mean, Thomas was moving from, he, he was in Pennsylvania, and then he's in New York and New Jersey and North Carolina, and then ultimately Illinois, um, which is, some people don't move around that much in the modern modern day in their whole lives, you know, um, as far as relocating. So I, I think it's interesting that people were more mobile than, than maybe I had thought they would be, you know, um, everyday people. So I think that's the thing that has stuck with me is just how much they're like us, even though it's 244 years ago. Alex White, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.